0: This morning we're continuing our, ser- our series, The Upside-Down Kingdom, which is a study on the Gospel of Luke and how Jesus came to flip this world upside down. And flip it, he really did. <laughs> and what this means, us living into this kingdom, it means that our lives look very different from the world. So each week, we're going to be examining something that the world might say and what the upside-down kingdom changes for us in our lives. One of my favorite parts of Luke's gospel, and especially after we're lighting the candle of joy today, is in Luke 1, which is Mary's song, the Magnificat. It's written, inspired by some of the deepest joy that you can experience in life, and it's one of the most influential songs of all time. It's a song of utter revolution. Whenever I first heard the word, or actually I read the word, rather, Magnificat, I was in middle school at a summer camp. And the class that we were taking was a song teaching us new worship songs. And he had me go through a a bunch of different songs that I could choose from that I hadn't heard of. And I saw this one, and I thought it was Magnificat. And I was like, this is hilarious. This song has to be about like a magnificent cat or something, so I picked it. And then we sang it, and there was nothing about a cat in it, and I was so disappointed. Like, I, I wanted there to be something in there, but it ended up being, you know, Ultimately, way better than if it was about a specific cat or something. If it was Magnificat Dog, things might be different. But nonetheless, it is one of the most influential and powerful and beautiful songs that exists. And that has led to N.T. Wright saying that the Magnificat is the gospel before the gospel. Before Jesus lived, before he died and rose again, this is the declarative statement that falls in line a lot with what Jesus says later. So we're going to go ahead and read this today. So this is from the NIV, but I did change one line, which I'll talk about why I did in a second. So Luke 1, it starts by saying, and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has held on to his child Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever just as he promised our ancestors. What a powerful song. What a beautiful, beautiful song. I guess I didn't bold the line that I changed. My bad. The line I changed is he has held on to his child Israel. So in your Bibles, it may not say that. It may say something that he's been mindful of his servant Israel or something like that. But if you take it literally, it could be interpreted or translated in this way, that he has held on to his child Israel, which I think is a much more beautiful metaphor for Mary, who's about to give birth to Jesus, right? But what's happening in this song is Mary is highlighting the story of God, of God taking care of his child, Israel, through the child that is to come through Mary. And this story is so deep in Old Testament references, so I think we should break this down a little bit. So to start, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So the words soul and spirit indicate that this is coming from deep within her like an expression that we might say that's kind of similar is, I really feel this in my bones. Like it resonates with you really deeply. So she's saying that she really is in the deepest part of her heart rejoicing in God who is her savior or deliverer, which that's a very common Old Testament theme. And then she says, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And we talked a little bit about this verse last week. But the word mindful here, it has this element of compassion baked into it. So, In Luke 9, that same word is used to describe the compassion that Jesus has for a sick child, for example. So it's as if God is, she's saying that God has been compassionate and kind to her. And in calling herself a servant, she's expressing this subordinate nature to God. That she recognizes that God is higher than her and she recognizes that she has a lowly or humble status. And we talked about this a little bit last week too. That women at that time, especially young women, I mean, they had hardly any significance placed on them by society. They were very much so treated as second class. And though the world overlooked her and her significance, God found favor with her. And as such, she expresses a deep gratitude from within her. And then she says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Whenever I see the words from now on, I always think of the greatest showman now. And now that I've said that, that song's probably in your head, which that's a good one to get in your head because it's a very good song. Just thinking about Hugh Jackman, you know, his voice its really powerful. Uh, But another, I could have also called this series From Now On because the moment that Jesus hits the scene, from that point on, everything's different. Everything changes. And what she's saying is from this point forward, all generations will refer to Mary as blessed because she has such a great significance in raising the Lord. And reading this makes me think of this really beautiful painting by Sister Grace Remington. She's a Catholic nun and has this famous painting of Mary and Eve. I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but I love it. There's so many elements to it that you can break down, but I'm just gonna focus on four, I think. So there's a lot of garden imagery happening here, right? There's fruit all around. There's the trees, and Eve is present. And the garden takes us back to a time whenever we could walk and talk with God, that we shared in such a close intimacy with God that we were this close to him, right? And I don't know if you can see this up here very well or not, but in Eve's right hand, she has a fruit in her hand. And there's fruit all around, but that's symbolizing the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the fruit that she ate. And from that point on, had to experience A lot of shame uh, from scripture, pointing back to her being the person that first sinned, right? And as if any of us would have done anything different, right? We are all sinners. We all would have made a similar mistake as that. But she's holding this fruit, and then her left hand is on the womb of Mary, on the true fruit, on the fruit that ends all hunger because he's the only thing that will truly satisfy us. And I, I love looking at the faces of these people. So Mary is look, not Mary, sorry. Eve is looking down in shame. Because I imagine being the person that brings sin into the world, that's got to be a very hard thing to get over. And it's almost as if she's feeling the womb to just be like, can I just get a glimpse of this, this joy that is to come? And then you see Mary just consoling her with her right hand and looking into her eyes with dignity, almost as if to say, today it gets better. Today your shame ends. And this really cool detail at the very bottom, you see the snake, the serpent, that's coiled around her leg. And you see Mary's heel crushing its head. And if, if, I'm sure a lot of you already are putting together some of the pieces there, this is a callback to Genesis 3, right? In this moment, God is giving out a punishment to the serpent, the great deceiver who wants to destroy God's good world. And in Genesis 3.15, it says this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Between the serpent and the woman, there has long since been a conflict, and because of Jesus, the head of the serpent has been crushed, as seen by Mary stomping on it. And through Jesus, the shame and the lack of value that's been placed on women, and not just women, any people of, humble and lowly estate, people that the world casts aside saying, you're not important. Because of Jesus, everybody's important. Because of Jesus, everybody has dignity. That's one of the most powerful statements in the Christian testimony. And this song has even more power thinking about this in context, so much so that this lowly, humble woman that the world has rejected, her words are forever immortalized as the inspired word of God. How beautiful is that? That God gave so much dignity to someone who who had such lowly nature like Mary. And then after speaking about what God has done for her personally, she then takes this to a more communal sense. She says, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. So God shows his mercy to those who fear him. And fearing God is really about understanding that God is the authority over your life. Having a reverence for God, understanding that his ways and who he is is so much higher than who we are that's a big part of fearing God and whenever she says from generation to generation it's a nod to God's faithfulness as he was forever forever he will be he is unchanging throughout time and then she says he has performed mighty deeds with his arm he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts Again, God, thinking about power and arm, is this like God arm wrestling? Like, what does this metaphor really mean? The power that this is referring to, there's a lot of different places in Scripture that refers to God's power by his arm. For example, Exodus 6, verse 6, this is God talking to Moses. He says, therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. So this expression, it has this idea of judgment in it. Also of battle, this battle imagery, right? And in this context, he is setting the people free from the captors' Egypt. And Israel throughout its time, right? Mary's song is kind of highlighting this, being faithful to the descendants of Abraham. Throughout time, Israel has had to deal with oppressor after oppressor after oppressor throughout its life. And then we see here this language of scattering the proud. The word for scattering is often used in crop metaphor. So like separating uh, the grain from the chaff sort of thing, which was a parable of Jesus. And it was a parable about judgment. So this idea in linking this with the proud is that judgment comes for the proud. And what's interesting to this point, you notice some of the characteristics that... Mary is attributing to God, right? That God is compassionate, that God is kind, that God is merciful and faithful and powerful and just and holy. Kind of sounds like a series we just ended, doesn't it? Because this is who God has always revealed himself to be. This is the same God. And then, so we're really comparing two different types of people here. We're comparing the God-fearers and the humble, those who receive mercy, with the proud and the powerful, and the rich. And as we're going to read right here too. So she continues saying, He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. So here the humble and hungry are considered good, but on the flip side, the rich and powerful are brought down and sent away empty. Does this sort of thing sound like something else you've heard or other teachings that you've heard maybe? Maybe maybe from scripture, to me it sounds a whole lot like the teachings of Jesus. For example, in Luke 6, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he talks about these blessings and woes, right? Which is a sort of parallel with the Beatitudes in Matthew. But some of the things that he mentions are, blessed are you who hunger, for you will be satisfied. And on the flip side, woe to you who are rich for you have already received your comfort. Doesn't that sound a lot like Mary? Doesn't that sound a lot like the Magnificat? Which makes me think about something. that's kind of interesting. Did Jesus learn this from Mary? I know a lot of times Christians have this idea that whenever Jesus came and took flesh, he was just immediately perfect and had perfect knowledge. Like he did not come out of the womb talking. He wasn't like, hey guys, I have arrived, savior of the world here. He didn't do that. The one, something that we see in Luke that's really special, because we don't know anything about Jesus from baby age to 30. There's a lot of life that happens in that time, right? I would say a lot of very formational years. The one thing that we know is we know that whenever Jesus was 12, we have this situation with him in the temple, but we also know at the end of that section, it says that he grew in wisdom and stature, that Jesus learned. He grew. He grew like every single one of us. So how cool of a thought is it that these words went on, these teachings from Mary went on to inspire his ministry and different key parts of what he believed, which is a reminder, parents, don't underestimate the impact that you have on your kids because it's huge. If the Son of God can learn from someone such as Mary, how much more can your child learn from you? Your responsibility as a spiritual guide for your kids is so important and it can't be understated. So believe that you're making a difference in your kids' lives. But let's hone in on what the big reversal here is in this song. It's bringing down the proud and powerful and exalting the humble god fears, And this sounds a whole lot like another one of Jesus' teachings in Luke 18. In Luke 18, verse 9, it says to... (laughs) I love the way this starts. This is just immediately being like, All right, this is everybody. Everybody listen here. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. (laughs) I love the way that starts. It's like, okay, I think we've all been guilty to some degree of looking down on other people, thinking that we are a little bit more important than we actually are. So to us, basically, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up from the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, who was a leader of the religious community and had a good amount of power in that time. And the other, a tax collector, who was seen as one of the worst kinds of sinners imaginable. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Because deep within us, deeply ingrained in all of us, is this nasty thing called pride. We all have it. And I I come from the long line of Christians that would argue that pride is the root of all sin. It is us believing that our way is right. We understand better than God's way. And we're going to do it our way. And even though we may not admit it, it's the belief that deep down... I'm the center of the universe. The world revolves around me. We see it every time someone points to a name on the back of their jersey. We see it every time someone refuses to tip a waiter. We see it when people refuse to admit when they're wrong, even when everyone else around them knows that they're wrong. And the world oftentimes seems to glorify these people. They glorify the people that like to glorify themselves. And there is a fine line with this. Like I mentioned last week, all of us have a very significant story, right? We all have dignity that's given to us by God. And similarly, humility, it's not thinking less of ourselves. It's not a competition to say as many self-deprecating things about ourselves as we can. That's not what humility is. Humility is thinking of yourselves less. You're not always looking out to your own needs above other people's. You care about other people's needs above your own. That's more of what humility is, not talking bad about yourself. Humility is like what we see with the tax collector in this story. It's a realization that we are in utter needs of God's grace, and we have no hope apart from God's grace. We don't have any status other than we are a child of God saved through grace, period. And humility enables us to not take ourselves so seriously. One of my mentors... (laughs) He told me if you if you're someone who takes yourself really seriously and you have a lot of pride, walk around with this song in your head playing all the time. Uh, cuz it kind of makes you not take yourself so seriously. <laughs> right? Because none of us are perfect. We all have a lot of room to grow, right? And because we are saved by grace, we can see other people with dignity. But when pride comes in, is whenever we think we are more important than others. When we think we're the center of the universe, whenever, as verse nine says, whenever we look down on other people. And a great example of this pride is seen in Nebuchadnezzar. I feel like Nebuchadnezzar was the kind of person that the Magnificat was written about. Somebody who was really rich and powerful and a ruler, that sort of thing. And he was brought low. And if you do a character study on Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to see a lot of different ways that pride manifests itself in his life. So I'm going to go through a list of some things and maybe let this be a pride checker for you. It's something that I have done and I've been guilty of all of these at different points of my life. So uh, I'm sure I will not be in single company on this. So the first thing that we see in Nebuchadnezzar's life about pride is that pride demands people respect your status. So, for example, Nebuchadnezzar, he made people call him your majesty, your highness. People referred to him as the king of kings, right? Which is what you do whenever you want to bolster up your own ego. How many times do we make people respect our status and our position above them? How many times do we refuse to listen to people who might be of lower status than us or not think that they have anything to give me or help me with? Another thing is pride does not tolerate inconvenience. We see this in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He wants people to interpret these dreams for him and whenever they can't interpret the dream the way he wants it, he kills them. He can't stand them wasting his time. And maybe we're not (laughs) hoping we're not that extreme on the inconvenience scale, but whenever we feel like our time's wasted, we get frustrated. We start blaming people. We start saying bad things about them. Another thing is pride reinterprets reality to fit what we want. So Nebuchadnezzar, he has this dream and Daniel gives him the interpretation of it that he, there's a statue made of different metals and he's the head of gold. And then this rock comes and smashes it, which is a symbol of his empire falling. But you lost Nebuchadnezzar at saying, I'm the head of gold? Huh, that's a great idea. You know what? What I'm gonna do is build a 90-foot statue that's pure gold of myself and make everybody bow down and worship me as a god. Woo! I don't know how you made that leap, but that's not at all (laughs) what the the dream was about, right? But he, he couldn't stand a world where he was gonna lose, or he was the bad guy, so he reinterpreted it to where, ah, I like this picture of me better. I'm gonna go with this. And we may not do something that extreme, but how many times have we been made out to be a villain by other people, or we've been in the wrong, but we wanna know, I'm actually the hero of this story. I actually did something great. Another opportunity to do a little pride examination is uh, the fourth one, which pride sees relationships as tools. So, Nebuchadnezzar, he couldn't care less about the people around him that were helping him, about their actual lives. He cared about what they could do for him. And how many times do we do that in life? Do we have relationships that we really just use for our own betterment, for something that they can give me, as opposed to actually caring? About them as a person. It's easy to do. Another thing is, pride cannot tolerate disagreement and seeks punishment for opposition. So, whenever three pesky, protesting Hebrews refused to bow their knee to this great statue that Nebuchadnezzar put up of him, he could not tolerate the thought of somebody not thinking he was as great as he thought he was. So, what he did was he threw those three in the furnace. Again, I'm hoping that your reactions to these things are not as severe (laughs) as what he's doing. But what is our relationship with those who disagree with us? Do we just kind of tune them out? Do we just sort of block them out and think that we can't learn anything from anybody else? We have all the right answers? Because we need to invite disagreement in our life. We need to have people in our lives that really call us out on stuff. Because if you don't do that, you're gonna never grow and you're gonna keep being in an echo chamber your whole life. Another thing is pride refuses to admit wrongdoing. I think all of us are guilty on this one. Nebuchadnezzar was told to repent and he decided he didn't want to repent. He doubled down on him being good. How many times do we do that? How many times, I mean, spouses can answer this better for their other spouse, right? (laughs) How many times do we wish that somebody we cared about would say that, just say you're wrong. I'm sorry, Abby, I've done that to you way too many times, but I, I have refused to say I'm wrong whenever I know I need to say it. But each time you say those words, each time you apologize and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me, what it does is it is slowly killing your pride. And what that is doing is helping us become more and more like Jesus. And the last thing is pride mistakes blessing for entitlement. So Nebuchadnezzar has these famous last words as he's standing in front of his kingdom and looking over everything. And he's like, oh, look at this great kingdom that I have built by my glory and my majesty. It's like, that's just asking for something bad to happen, right? Whenever you make a a statement like that. But he thought he earned it. He thought he worked hard to get that and not understanding that this was all a blessing given to him by God. And we may think we have worked hard, that we have earned this, right? Right? But every good gift is given from God. And we need to understand that it's a blessing and not something that we are entitled to. And because Nebuchadnezzar was this way and was so prideful, he was ultimately humiliated. All of his friends, all the people he loved, his power, it was all stripped from him. And he gets to a point where he looks like a horror creature in, the, in, the, like in movies. He has like really long fingernails and like feathery hair and stuff, just this really creepy looking dude. And he gets to a point where he just asks, I would imagine it's not in there, but I would imagine it's like, how did I get here? How did I get to the point where all these relationships are gone and I don't have any more power? It's because he didn't realize something crucial. So let's, let's see what the upside down kingdom changes about pride here. Nebuchadnezzar was a king that was called the king of kings and he wanted everyone to bow to him because of his own pride. But little did he know that the path to exaltation, it's not through power, it's not through pride, it's not through insecurity, it's through humility. If pride is the door to all sin, humility is the door to all righteousness. The fruit of the spirit grows in the soil of humility. And through a life of humility, a new king of kings has been crowned. And he doesn't look a thing like Nebuchadnezzar. And everyone will bow to him, not because of his pride demanding it, but because his glory is so great that we can't help but bow to him. And this hymn that's written by Paul in Philippians 2, this expresses the gospel after the gospel. After what Jesus came and did, this is saying the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. And this has a profound implication for us. In Philippians 2, my all-time favorite passage, here we go by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every time I read that, it puts me in my place. How dare we beat our chests in pride thinking that we have done something spectacular with our lives. When the God of the universe became like us in every way and became a servant, he washed people's feet and he died a criminal's death for us. The God who can boast because he's the one that has given us every gift that we have. He didn't come down boasting. He rode a donkey into Jerusalem he he took status things that were of low nature that is our God so how dare we think that we are so special above other people that we deserve nothing less than the best stuff that we can never be wrong that we are always right that people standing in my way are an obstacle or a waste of my time how dare we think that Whenever the God of the universe came to serve us. And this changes everything. This passage changes everything. This changes the way that we interact with one another. This changes the way that we see each other. We, we value each other. We see a lot of dignity in one another because of this. This changes how we deal with conflict. And church, imagine this. What if we collectively sought to kill our pride? What if we made an effort to be an egoless church? That would be amazing. It would change this community. It would change the world. Because an egoless group is what heaven is going to be. Where we all understand who we are before God and one another. That none of us are greater than the other. And each time we kill our pride, we are bringing heaven down to earth And though the world bows the knee to their pride, we bow the knee to King Jesus out of humility. Because we are not a people that looks down on one another. Because here's the crazy thing. Being saved by grace means it is impossible for you to look down on somebody else. Because there is nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. There's nothing you can do to give you a higher status than somebody else. We are all sinners and we are all equal before the cross of Jesus. And that is how we can look at one another in the eye with dignity because social statuses are destroyed because of Jesus. We can do this because we know who the real center of the universe is. And he's kind, he's compassionate, he's a servant, he washes our feet and dies for us in our place, and his name is Jesus. And today, we're going to start doing something a little bit different. If you want to know more about Jesus, if you want to know more about plugging into this church, if you want to know more about how you can be a benefit to this kingdom here in Franklin, or if you want to confess something, if there's something going on in your life that's really been hard, if you want to confess pride, I want to give you all the opportunity and we want to give you the opportunity as a church. So, during this time, I'm going to ask shepherds and prayer team if you could go ahead and line the, the back wall here. And if you have something going on in your life that you would like prayers for, please come to some of these people and talk with them. If you want to give your life over to Jesus today, we want to give that possibility. So, after we sing this next, or during this next song that we sing, go ahead and make your way back there. But I want to pray before we get there. Jesus, you are so good. We can't really comprehend the attitude that you have the, uh, the heart posture to want to be somebody who is a servant of all people. The people that you created, the people that have cursed you and spat on you and nailed you to a cross, that you still come to serve, that you can still say, Father, forgive them. God, help us to be a humble church. Help us to be a people that looks to you that realizes that we are nothing special on our own and only by you and your grace are we considered anything. We are grateful that you see us with dignity, that you clothe us with righteousness. And I pray that you help us to understand our status, to help us understand that we are not any better than anybody else. Help us to not look down on other people. But I pray that you help us be people of grace, understanding that You have given us so much that we should then freely give to others. We're thankful for you being such an incredible, wonderful, powerful God, and we pray that you help us to be conformed more and more into the image of Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.